Good morning. For the record, I would love to have Joe be my app when I listen to the scriptures being read. Thank you for joining us this Sunday morning as we continue our Acts series, The Actions of the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. Today, we venture into some territory in the scriptures that depending on how we view the gospel of grace, perhaps could contradict how some of us view Christianity and how it's supposed to work. Last week, we discussed how the apostles and the elders had heard about a certain people attempting to uh, perverse the way in which a Gentile could be saved. And I believe that Peter said it best when he said in Acts 15, 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are by the grace of our Lord Jesus exclusively. It was really important text for me. It was personal for me because I personally, at being in the church, being a Christian for over two decades, I've experienced far too much religion being what's expected of people in order for them to come to Christ rather than grace and belief in that grace in the person and the work of Jesus. I love this message of it is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. I am committed to this message, and while I know I don't always embody this message, if I'm honest, I experience the conviction of knowing that when I stop thinking about myself all the time and focus on the gospel of grace, that I, like many of you, are trophies of grace because we've committed our lives to Jesus. Today, we will see how just because the gospel of grace is what a Christian message is, that's what we believe, that doesn't mean that within that community of believers, there isn't disagreement and conflict. But as we will see today, the furthering of the message is something that God does in spite of us and our emotions and our reactions to things. So guess what? Jesus wins. Woo! But we'll get to that. Now, the running joke for those of you who are in ministry, either paid or not paid, is this. Ministry would be so easy if it wasn't for the people. Uh, we don't need, mean that about any of you because you're perfect. But being in ministry in paid and unpaid roles has taught me that ministry really is about the people while also stewarding the message of the gospel of grace among those people including those who we are yet to meet. So let's read, and I'll show you more of what I mean specifically. So verse 36 of 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Paul, who never was the pastor of a particular church, felt a responsibility to those whom he had preached the word to over the years and where he had helped establish churches. His care for them is evident in this request to Barnabas to go back and visit these people. This is what commentators call the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. His first missionary journey took the gospel message, which we've studied over the past few months, to Cyprus and to Galatia. And as we have studied in the past few chapters, now on the second missionary journey, he will begin to establish churches and preach the gospel in Macedonia, which is northern Greece and Achaia, which is southern Greece, which will be the first time preaching the gospel message of grace to the continent of Europe as we know it. Important and well-known churches will be established through this missionary journey, including in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, 
But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John. He's also known as Mark, or John Mark, who wrote the gospel known as Mark, who becomes a scribe and a disciple of Peter. But Paul disagreed with taking John Mark because of a track record of abandonment, which I think is a very important conflict in ministry that we as a church tend to need to address consistently. John Mark had left them while on a missionary journey, which the scriptures almost pay no mind to when it happened. Here's what it says in Acts 13, verse 13. I remember when I taught this, I chose not to really unpack this because it doesn't say much. It just says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Talk about not spilling the tea. Why did he do this? Because his abandonment was not the point. That's why the text doesn't say much about this. They didn't stop the missionary journey because someone decided to flake on what they said they were going to do. This text is like, well, moving on. But now there is this other instance where this young man who had not done what he intended to do or said he was going to do was now being given another chance by Barnabas, the great encourager and an older cousin to this young man, John Mark. But Luke writes that Paul did not think it was wise because of John Mark's track record. Was Paul right? Yes. But was Barnabas right to want to give another chance to, to John Mark? Yes. Uh-oh. Us black and white thinkers may have our mind explode today. So hold on. Verse 39. They had such a dark, or dark, yeah, okay, such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. What? This isn't how we think Christianity is supposed to work. Isn't this the venom that those outside of the church spew to attempt to discredit the faith in Jesus that we're supposed to have as Christians? How can two heroes in the faith not agree on everything if Christ is central? It's almost like Christianity is more gray than most of us want to admit. I think for the black and white thinker or the dogmatic thinker, they want Christianity to fit within the box that they have imagined. Now, I tend, I'm an audio learner. I listen to stuff. When I run, I love to listen to stuff and I tend to memorize things. Having visual things are not as exciting to me. Mike's a visual learner. I would assume most of you are visual learners. So you know what I did for you? I brought a visual aid today. Are you ready? Are you ready? This is amazing. Okay, here we go. It's a box. Yep. Uh-huh. So when we think in such a way that we're a black and white thinker or a dogmatic thinker where we think, no, things have to be a certain way, what happens is that that box becomes the filter for our faith. The word and the actions of us as Christ followers all kind of seem to have to fit inside the box. So everything has to fit inside this box for the black and white thinker. Otherwise, you're wrong or sinful or you're not Christian is what the black and white thinker will think. But grace, church, is not black and white. It's not dogmatic. It's grace. It's not something that fits into the box. So you want to know what it's like? That's grace. There's my visual aid. That's all you get. 
Grace maybe is a box, but we don't understand or know the dimensions because it's not easily as understood as the rules and laws and regulations that a lot of times we try to force feed out of the text. A well-known speaker and pastor was discipling a friend of mine, so I'm going to try not to use names. We'll see. And they served a very poor and beat-up area. My friend was one of the under-shepherds, uh, or he was an assistant pastor in this ministry who served the people of this region, and they would see people come to Christ almost daily. And one of these young men who became a Christian a few months earlier had become serious about his faith. He began to share his faith. He had begun to gather people in a Bible study. He had began to see friends of his become Christians. He even got to be a part of baptizing some of them. One day, he came to my friend, who was an assistant pastor under a lead pastor in this ministry, and he confessed that since he had become a Christian, he and his girlfriend were intimate, and she had become pregnant. Kids, I'm not going to explain how that happens. This young man was terrified to tell this well-known pastor, this lead pastor who oversaw the ministry, who had taken him in and shown him so much grace, he was worried about the consequences that the grace that was being given to him and he was experiencing might run out. So this young man shared this with my friend, the assistant pastor. And my friend counseled him to tell this other pastor, this leader of the ministry, about it. But my friend offered to go with him when he shared this news. So they met in this lead pastor's office. And I don't know if you've ever been in my office, but every time I invite someone to my office, they feel like it's like the principal. Like, hey, you want to go in my office? And they're like, okay. Um, all right. So they started to have this conversation. The young man started to tell this lead guy about what happened between he and his girlfriend. He worried about how this leader would respond. And this young man struggled to even look this leader in the eye. After sharing the news, the pastor looked at this young man and he said, son, thank you so much for telling me. I just want you to know that whatever you and your girlfriend need to help with this baby, you let us know. Diapers, formula, a place to live, there is no request that you cannot ask of us because we are family and we are in this with you, okay? This young man probably in this moment understood grace in a whole new way, in a personal way in a lasting way. But that wasn't the end of the story. My friend, the assistant pastor within the ministry stayed and he talked with the lead pastor after his friend or after this young man had just left. And my friend said to the lead pastor, you know, I am just so impressed by the grace that was shown to this young and new believer. The lead pastor looked at my friend and he had been, my friend had been following Jesus for decades. In fact, he and I became, uh, we kind of got into the ministry together and this, my friend had been called into ministry, and the lead pastor looked at him, and he told him, if you did that, you'd no longer be able to serve in this ministry because you ought to know better. Whoa. But my, my friend then understood more of what grace is like, while also understanding more of the responsibility of caring and shepherding the flock of God. See, Spider-Man gets told in every single multiverse, with great power comes great responsibility. Huh? Huh? But Stan Lee didn't come up with that. He's just kind of badly quoting Jesus. In Luke 12, 48, says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. 
And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Which for the legalist, let's be honest, some of us are still a little legalistic in this room. Raise your hand. No, you can't. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. If you, the, the non-liars, hallelujah. God expects more of those that he entrusts more to. And that doesn't mean just gifts or talents, but knowledge of the Son. So there's kind of a bait and switch in Christianity, and I like to tell crowds of people this. There's this bait and switch when it comes to knowing Jesus. I kind of think God gets us with this. Here's what it is. See, as a believer, if you've committed to Christ, my hope, and and I hope your hope, is that you want to pursue Jesus more. You want to grow more in your knowledge of Jesus and your understanding of grace. And you want to mature, but be careful because maturity means more responsibility as a follower of Jesus. And when some of us create spiritual fake IDs and claim we are more mature than we really are, God gives us opportunities to grow in maturity or to expose our lack of maturity in the way we react to things. Now, I I, I think if you've been here before, you've heard me confess sin. You've heard me confess where I'm not where I want to be, but praise God, I'm not where I used to be. Here's, here's something. I am not a humble person. I really wish I was. I really wish I didn't think of myself as much as I do. And while perhaps I've grown a little in this circumstance over the past 41 years, I hope and pray that if God allows me to grow old in this life, that I will continue to think of myself less and more about the importance of the gospel message over my lifetime, and that fruit will be produced. But the way I grow, and the way that you grow, is different. That's a good takeaway. The way I grow, and the way you grow, is different. And that doesn't fit into some formula. This is not a competition, but the church is a group project of sanctification. We're growing together. We're helping one another grow in our understanding of grace and the knowledge of the Son as we head towards maturity. But what do you do with a passage like this that we're talking about, where the proclamation and the people are both the ministry, but they kind of seem to be at odds? Luke left this in. Why did Luke leave this in? Why is this in the text? Well, the answer to pretty much every time something in Scripture doesn't have the best look, it's because it happened. But also, because the Holy Spirit knew this was going to be a continued issue within the church of the living God. And it is one that we need the Word of God to speak to, not just our opinions. Because we will always be in conflict with the Word, with our natural reaction. Was Paul wrong to not want John Mark to have another chance to go with them to do this, while Paul felt called to focus on the proclamation of the gospel, establishing churches and spreading the word of the Lord so it could flourish amongst many people, both Jew and Gentile. No, I don't think he was wrong. But was Barnabas wrong to want to give John Mark another chance to help him grow and to contribute to the work of God through him? No, he wasn't wrong either. They were both right, just with a different emphasis and way of doing things, and they were growing differently in different ways. So how does that work for you guys today who only think in black and white? Who were like, could you tape the box back together so I can put stuff in it? 
Can two people be right in the same circumstance? And even more than that, can God use this disagreement to further his kingdom? Spoiler, which it's not much of one, God does use this. Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. Mark's birthplace, for the record, and a newish church that had not had any leaders come back to it since it was established to encourage and share about what had taken place throughout Antioch and beyond among many, many Gentiles. So it's probably not a stretch to say that this disagreement benefited the church in Cyprus as it was strengthened by Barnabas and Mark's encouragement. And then, verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Sicilia, that's not how you say it, strengthening the churches. Paul then went with the companionship of Silas and heads out to these two cities with the blessing of the church in Antioch. They left and they began to encourage the churches, probably through answering the exact same question that had been brought up in Antioch regarding circumcision and salvation. Silas, just for the record, was a very good choice as a co-laborer. He was known as a prophet who could teach and preach the word of God. He was a Jew, which meant he had access to all the synagogues alongside Paul. And he was a Roman citizen, which meant he also had the same benefits and protections that Paul had as well. And what did Paul and Silas do as they visited these churches? Luke writes that they strengthened them which to me means bringing encouragement of the Gentiles coming to Christ all over the region that no one expected to first be circumcised in order to become a Christian and really from the authority of the word that they brought and affirmed by teaching and discussing the truth of the gospel. Chapter 16, verse one, not really a different chapter. It's all kind of one thought. Verse one, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy, great name, lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul then goes to Derby and he goes to Lystra, you know, the place where years earlier Paul got stoned for preaching that you were saved by grace of the Lord Jesus. He's back to encourage those who did believe the message that he had proclaimed and who had turned to Christ. And one of those was a half-Jew, half-Greek young man, or perhaps a teenager, from the age of about 16 to 20, so teenager or young man, named Timothy, who had believed the message that Paul had preached, and Paul says in a future letter to Timothy that he had the scriptures taught to him, probably through his grandmother and mother who believed as well. Look, I'll we'll jump far in time to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. And then later on in that same letter, writing to Timothy, Paul says in chapter 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know that from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul then sees Timothy as a young man full of potential that Paul decides he would take along with him on the second missionary journey. And here's what it says in verse 3 in Acts 16. Paul wanted to take him along on this journey 
So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Whoa. Didn't we just spend a ton of time? Wasn't last week's sermon all about talking about how the Judaizers had come and attempted to convince others that you must be circumcised in order to then become saved? And what was Paul and Peter and Barnabas and James's response? Uh, no, you are only saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus. So why on earth would Paul have Timothy circumcised? Especially considering what Paul says to those in Galatia in his letter to the church regarding Titus, who was a Greek. Here's what he says in Galatians chapter two, verse one. Then after 14 years, as Paul describes what he did after coming to Christ, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I bet Paul could be seen as a hypocrite right now. Inconsistent. This could make his claim that you're only saved by grace through faith in Christ as less important than he seemed to say that it was. Or, maybe, the circumstances aren't as identical as one would believe. See, Titus was a Greek. Both mom and dad were of that heritage. He was a Gentile through and through. He came to Christ. Timothy was a half-Greek and a half-Jew. And in the traditions of the day, what your mother's heritage was, especially if you were Jewish, you were considered what that heritage was, a Jew. And so Paul, if he didn't have Timothy circumcised, possibly could have been accused, if he had brought Timothy with him to proclaim the gospel, could have been accused of saying that Jews did not have to circumcise their children, which regarding salvation is 100% true. But regarding your identity with your heritage and your tradition was something that the Jews, here is the point, we're not yet ready to give up. And like James's guidelines to the Gentiles, which were regarding abstaining from food, sacrifice to idols, from strangled animals, from sexual immorality, and from blood, this wasn't doing things in order to be saved. This was so that the message that you were bringing had a better chance of being heard. Last week, I made the point that with maturity comes thinking of ourselves less and thinking of the message of the gospel of grace more. And here we have another circumstance where the message that Paul was commissioned to share was so important to him. And Timothy, apparently, because good old Tim was willing to have an outpatient surgery, if you know what I'm saying, so that he not only could enter the synagogues as a Jew, but so no Jewish person who needed to hear the gospel would be closed off to the message even before they heard it because of what seemed like an uncommitted Jew attempting to proclaim the gospel. Paul so understood the importance of the message that in this case, similar to what Paul will eventually write to the Corinthians, here's what he says. In 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, 
so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Paul saw that engaging with people where they're at and to not be a stumbling block as a messenger was vital to his ministry. Contextually, here's where he says this. He followed it in this in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. He says, be careful how... However, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, immature is another way to say that, for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Giving up meat? No thanks. No, no. But seriously, Paul's point is that our freedom, which we have as Christians, which was purchased by Christ on that cross and through the resurrection, and that we are saved that we are sealed, that we are delivered, not because of our actions, but because of the Lord Jesus' grace. We can give up some things willingly, even if we really enjoy it. Not because we have to, but because Christ and his message are more important to us than something competing for our affections. But Paul taking young Timothy with him, investing in him, teaching him about how to not be a stumbling block to those who needed to hear the message of grace and to continue to be strengthened and poured into. I was at a, a, a fantastic dinner last night. and It was wonderful and had a great time. And some of the people there knew I was a pastor and some people are in this room right now. And some of those people who didn't know me or don't know me as well know that I'm a pastor, but they have all these assumptions about that. So they're talking and they like swear word comes out and they're like, sorry. And I'm like, I don't, why would I care? But those are kind of the assumptions that take place. And so if, my, if I start to just act like everybody else and I start to lower, um, if I start to just act as if I'm holier than thou, they're going to assume that you have to be something in order to be saved. And the only thing that makes me and anyone who is yet to come to Christ different is I've just received his grace. The grace is still invited for them. Verse four, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. This letter that the apostles, elders, and leaders wrote in Jerusalem was being communicated from town to town where these churches, the people, not the steeple, okay, were gathering to know God better through the scriptures. And now they're being taught what the elders and apostles, which we studied last week, came up with so they could know how both Gentiles and Jews who became Christians could worship together. We live in a pretty irreligious area. Did you guys know that? Like there was no traffic on the way here. You know what I'm saying? One where truth becomes whatever someone wants it to be. Where offending someone is more of a sin than not actually telling the truth. 
And I get asked from a lot of people that do my profession in different areas across the country, outside of the Bay Area especially, why I stay here to preach the gospel, considering how irreligious and even offended by Christianity society seems to be. And my answer has continued to be the same for many years. Many of you who grew up in the church or many of you who have just been around the church have probably heard the story of David and Goliath. You know who I'm talking about? All right, good, on the, the, yeah, flannel board, okay. It's in 1 Samuel 17. We're not gonna read it, because it's super long. But I'll, I'll give a really weak version of what happened. So you've got David, who's with Saul, who's part of God's army, and you've got Goliath, who's this warrior for the Philistines, and the Philistines are trying to take out God's army. I'm really butchering this. And uh, Goliath is uh, three cubits, something like that. Nine foot, nine inches tall is what most people think. That's tall. And you've got Goliath, and he says to Saul's army, he says, you send out one of your warriors, and I'll fight him, and if I win, then you guys bow down, and if you win, then we'll bow down. But Goliath's nine feet nine. And so David, who's a young shepherd boy, who is kind of like, whatever, I've got God with me, I'm good. He comes to Saul, and he says, no, no, let me fight. And David's own brother was like, no, you're a pipsqueak, you're, stop it. But David's willing to go out there, and then he comes out there, Bart Simpson style, with what? Rocks and a slingshot. And he's got these smooth rocks, and he comes out, and he sees Goliath, and they're lined up Braveheart style, and now as he walks up to him, he looks at him, and what the text uh, tends to imply is that David is with God, and so he knows that Goliath can't take out what God is going to do, and so he puts the rock in the slingshot, he flings it, and what happens? Right in the dude's forehead, guy goes right down. Then if you read on, this isn't in children's ministry, but David cuts off the dude's head and then like has it as a trophy. Anyone who says the Bible's boring, wrong. (laughs) Which all of that is kind of, I mean, it's true. Like David knew that, that God was gonna be with him and all of that. But David's also Solomon's father who was considered the wisest man who ever lived. So I'm pretty sure David was pretty wise as well, except for with Bathsheba. But other than that, and so, so So David probably looks at this nine foot, nine inch double shack guy and he looks at him and he's like, hmm, takes his rock, gets a slingshot, looks right at him and goes, well, I can't miss. Church, you don't have to go very far to find someone who doesn't know your Lord. Some of them are in your house. Some of them are at work. Some of them are at school. Some of them are at the coffee shop. Some of them are your waiters. Some of them, you can't miss here in the Bay Area. And so when I get asked, hey, why are you here? Because I can't miss. There are so many options. There are so many opportunities to share my faith. And my goal is not to save anyone. Even though Paul says that I might win some, he knows that it's God who does the saving. He just wants to be a part of what God's doing. And we get to be a part of what God's doing here in the Bay Area. And the truth is we can't miss because there are opportunities everywhere. Church, we exist to help others grow in the knowledge of the Son, to understand grace better each day, and to mature in the likeness of Jesus. And so I want you to think about the reality that there are opportunities everywhere. Another pastor friend of mine, his wife and I, our kids go to school together, and I tend to see her most days, and so when we, we go to pick up our kids, I'll see her, and we'll talk and everything, and she just came back from the Midwest, I won't say which state, and she was in the Midwest, 
And I said, how was it? And she goes, oh, I mean, the houses were beautiful. There was great community, a lot of good things, but I just didn't like it. And I said, why? And she goes, because everyone was Christian. I was like, well, heaven's going to suck for you, but okay. I didn't say that. Um, But my point was, or her point was, that she didn't feel like she could really talk to anyone about the gospel because everyone was like, no, 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 I'm a believer. And they didn't actually want to talk about it. We actually have the great benefit of, there are people around here that aren't going to want to talk about it that have nothing to do with Jesus, but there are people in this room that other people have talked with about Jesus and you've come to know the Lord because God used other people here. So God saves us by his son's work so we could know him, so we could show him off. He gave us the message of grace, not only to be saved by, but to then share with others. He grows us as we obey for the right reasons with motivations of loving the Lord our God Almighty with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. That's the first commandment. And then he gives us the second commandment, love our neighbor as ourselves. Check it, as the application of the first commandment. That's how we love God. This faith that many of you have adopted is simpler than maybe you realize. It is a team sport. It is a group project as the church of the living God of sanctification. And as Luke says in verse 5 of chapter 16, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And other passages Uh, God tends to point out that the churches grew in their faith and God added to their number daily those that were being saved. But here's the thing. We began with conflict. We began with this idea that Paul didn't want John Mark to go on this missionary journey. And you know what? The text is pretty quiet about Paul and Barnabas after this. Not a lot of discussions about them. They, They seem to be good. But what about Paul and John Mark? Because the story's not over. There was a disagreement And Paul did not want to serve with Mark, and God used it. God brought Paul and Silas and then Timothy, who became the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and Paul wrote multiple letters to, including what many believe to be Paul's last letter written that was included in Scripture, 2 Timothy. And here's how he concludes his letter. And when I heard this passage preached one time, Mike and I were at a conference, and it was literally my favorite sermon I've ever heard, and it was like the worst passage to ever preach. But this guy being used by the Holy Spirit just opened our eyes to how beautiful this is. It says this at the end of 2 Timothy, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Wow, shade. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. While there was conflict, God used it. Did God will the separation of them? I believe he did. Did God will the conflict in which it took place? I don't think he did. But when we separate, it ought to be with joy that God can and use people in different places. And for Paul and John Mark, they both grew from this. They both partook in the spreading of the gospel and individual spiritual growth that took place as they responded to the circumstances that God allowed them to live through. Worship team, you can come on up. In Church of the Valley... I hope that we would be a community that first focuses on the Lord Jesus. And as we do, we love others for the right reasons because Jesus first loved us. 
And as we care for others, the message of the gospel is seen in our love and hopefully heard through our proclamation. And as this takes place, the church's faith is strengthened and God reaches more and more people for the glory of his name. But the point is always Jesus and his grace given through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Conflicts, church, will come, even with other believers. But that doesn't mean that God isn't allowing growth opportunities. May we seek first the kingdom of God in our relationships with others. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it is true. And Lord, I thank you for this conflict in the way that it is in Scripture and that we get to see it, and hopefully it speaks to us, and maybe it speaks to a current circumstance. Maybe it speaks to a former circumstance. Maybe it... I guarantee it'll speak to a future circumstance. But God, I ask that as we look at your word and we're struck by the grace that you give us in Jesus, that we wouldn't live trying to force other people to be circumcised in some 21st century way, but we would understand that people can only come to you, God, through the grace of our Lord Jesus and that we would be bearers of that good news with others. God, may you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.